Hello and welcome to our latest Crossroads podcast. My name is Antonio Fabrizio and I'm a reporter at Information focusing on EMEA transactions. In our podcast today, we'll be discussing why and how infrastructure funds are expanding their presence in the rolling stock sector. We will also see which future developments are expected in the European rail leasing segment. My guests today are Athanasius Zulovitz, a partner at Infravia Capital Partners, and Oliver Edgar Mullen, an investment director at DIF Capital Partners. In September, Infravia launched NextRail Lease, a new rolling stock lesser focused on Western Europe. And just over a year ago, DIF acquired the stake in Irish Lesser to AxRail. I would like to ask our two guests to briefly introduce themselves and uh, talk about what I believe is their first investment in, the, in this sector. So can you tell us uh, uh, what was the company rationale for investing in it and how it has evolved since then, starting uh, chronologically with Oliver first and then Athanasius? Thank you, Antonio, for um, inviting me to the podcast. Um, my name is Oliver Müllem. I'm an investment director at DIFF uh, Capital Partners, and uh, I joined the company almost four and a half years ago and uh, have since then spent most of my time actually in the transportation market. Um, we have started to invest in the intermodal transport market um, in 2017 um, and have signed then and closed last year our acquisition of uh, a 49% stake in Tuaxway Limited, which is an island-based um, leasing company for rail freight wagons that are operated um, across Europe and in the UK. For us, rail freight or rail in general is really um, at the backbone of the uh, transportation infrastructure in Europe and it makes a significant contribution to our daily life. Um, it is um, a market that enjoys on the one hand side um, a stable um, economic environment um, and for us as an infrastructure investor uh, ticks quite a lot of boxes with um, on the one hand side its um, role that it plays um, in all of our daily lives um, and secondly its um, uh, stable and predictive business model which for an infrastructure fund is certainly one of the key investment criteria. Thank you. Athanasius? Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Antonio. Uh, so I'm Athanasius Zulevitz. I'm uh, one of the partners at Infravia. And uh, on my day job, I'm an investor on behalf of our infrastructure funds. I am not a transportation specialist. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm, uh, I have invested in pretty much all uh, uh, verticals or sub-asset classes of infrastructure over the last eight years. Uh, since I started, uh, I joined my partners in, in the firm. But uh, uh, RAIL has been one of the initiatives, uh, let's say, that I have uh, started working on over the last two, two and a half years. And this has been really a segment for us that has been essentially following the secular trend of energy transition and translating it into the transportation uh, subsector. So we have, uh, since the beginning, uh, uh, view the rail as one of the best ways uh, to find uh, predictable 
and uh, uh, we will be discussing later probably about that uh, growing demand on the transportation asset class. Uh, this has been uh, demonstrated uh, during the COVID period as well. Transportation has in general been heavily affected, rail a lot less so, but even more so demand uh, post-COVID uh, today for rail is probably larger than what it was before. That was the thesis, and the next rail was one, in our view, of the best uh, uh, ways of uh, delivering value to our investors by getting involved into the rail space through the setup of a new Rosco that focuses on uh, a fairly large uh, segment of the rail uh, locomotive leasing space, which uh, to date has been largely untapped uh, from existing Roscos. Thank you very much. Yes, having said this, uh, you know, the next thing that comes to mind is uh, this is not going to be a one-off investment, right? So you guys plan to grow the business, I suppose it will be through organic growth, or are you also considering uh, M&As and, uh, you know, connected to these? Basically, um, there are various uh, countries uh, with different legislation. So do you think some countries are have have room for improvement some are uh, countries are in europe are more attractive than others which ones uh, want to go first athanasius sure thank you quite a few things to unpack there but uh, let me let me try to start with uh, the easy one uh, leasing is a scale business i mean there are significant uh, economies of scale uh, to be drawn uh, in, in this business and therefore growth is uh, in a certain way an obligation of the business model itself uh, that is not only for rail that is uh, for any other leasing business be it planes be it boxes all sorts of stuff that infrastructure funds do so uh, one of the difficulties i suppose in uh, in this segment is to find the right scale to get involved and that is one of the most significant barriers of entry at the end of the day uh, for new entrants of uh, starting to come with new equipment uh, in the market so growth for sure uh, now depending on the thesis of uh, each party um, m a or uh, Organic growth uh, is very different. So NextRail is uh, a project uh, that focuses essentially, to put it simply, on uh, the part of uh, the, the network uh, that uh, is non-electrified. So 50% uh, of our European network is not electrified. A much larger percentage of the network that is actually used by FRET due, due to the capillarity of the network that you require is non-electrified. And today we are short of locomotion or traction that has the ability to go either uniquely on the non-electrified side or a combination of the electrified and non-electrified network. There are about 15,000 locomotives today, all the locomotives in Europe, that cover that, uh, that, that area. And uh, uh, most of them, or over 60% of them are of an age that uh, they don't meet any more um, environmental or even safety norms. So there's going to be a huge replacement need to start with. And that part is going to be more about the product. Now, you mentioned countries before. We need to realize that a leasing business is also about having access to clients. And that time, sometimes that is local, 
that is not uh, um, access that is a multi-country. And therefore, M&A could make sense when you have synergies uh, to create with a business, particularly on covering more client base. Because otherwise, buying old locomotives today just to have scale, be it electric or, or non-electric locomotives, is not necessarily the best use of, uh, of capital uh, in a context when you have such huge replacement needs in the European railway space. Perfect. Thank you so much. I don't know, Oliver, if you want to add to this and maybe also comment more generally about, uh, you know, competition. We've seen some, some movement there uh, over the past couple of years. So uh, what's your view as well? Yeah, um, I think the rail market is a truly European market, especially for, for rail cars, because a rail car can basically run in every country. Therefore, um, as a rail car lessor, you are not necessarily linked to certain countries, but the most valuable asset that you have is your access to your customers. Um, as Athanasios already said, I think the European rail market benefits from quite some momentum these days. On the one hand side, you have an increasing transport volume. On the other hand, the share of leased assets increases. At the same time, um, large state-owned incumbents lose more and more business so that you have more private players, which typically favorite leasing solutions over, over ownership of assets. So that sets the scene for um, growth in the coming years. And the key advantage that we have at Truax Rail Limited is that we are one of the leading leasing companies in the intermodal um, market segment, which is by far the largest rail, um, rail transportation segment. And therefore we benefit from, from a unique access to clients, which obviously helps us to drive growth um, organically, um, but also gives us opportunity for uh, portfolio acquisitions or M&A deals. Um, looking at the competition overall, I think it's um, fair to say that the rail market has attracted a lot of um, investors in recent weeks and months, as you can see from the transactions that have closed over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, but um, ultimately, the market uh, hasn't really changed that much because um, it is a market which a with a pretty high barrier to entry. So in a rail car leasing market, it's extremely difficult to start a business from scratch. In a locomotive market, that's different, clearly. Um, and therefore, the names of the owners might have changed. And of course, every um, investment company that is investment in the rail industry wants to grow its platform. But given the positive dynamic, dynamics of the markets, um, this um, has not led so far, and I don't expect it will lead to, um, to a deterioration of the investment um, environment. Okay, thank you very much. I suppose we can, um, we can move on to a macro picture now just to to see what's happening at European level. And obviously you know, the things that come to mind for me are, uh, you mentioned uh, the, the pandemic, but uh, how has the, the pandemic impacted the sector and what's, what's like or, or not impacted the sector and what do you expect in the months to come? And regarding the uh, legislation, so the EU introduced the uh, so-called EU rail packages, which is basically legislation to 
aimed to create this uh, single rail area across Europe. And how does this translate into an opportunity for infra funds? Uh, you know, are our governments doing enough? Well, the answer is probably they never do enough. But the question is, um, to what extent is, is, is government support actually needed? Um, starting with the beginning of your question, I think the impact of COVID-19 um, was, uh, was surprisingly for um, most of us probably very positive because it has shown how reliable um, rail transport actually is. If you compare um, the, the transport volumes realized um, during COVID-19 with pre-COVID um, volumes, then you see that um, the volumes have remained constant. Um, so we haven't seen a sharp decline in transportation volumes. Why? Because rail transport um, is a very efficient way in moving goods from A to B. And therefore, um, it has rather put rail in the spotlight um, and has led to a positive momentum because now everybody understands on one hand side uh, that uh, rail market is, is reliable. And at the same time, you have um, uh, the, uh, the political uh, ambitions and the, the pressure from the public and from industry companies to um, move towards a more sustainable way of transporting goods. Um, and that's momentum we see right now. Um, and what we also see is that um, in, in, in the past, the market participants tended to say, okay, government has to provide more support um, to um, yeah, allow rail to play a more important role. But what we see now, it's um, the growth in the industry is primarily driven by industrial companies that um, aim to reduce the carbon footprint of their logistic supply chain. So we see more and more customers approaching us um, with ideas to um, move their transport from road to rail um, or to, to um, favor ra rail transport over, over other transportation modes. You see ports like the port of Antwerp who has announced to double its rail transport in the next 10 years. And in my view, um, we are going to see the industry that um, will make a lot of progression, um, but um, politics will run behind that. Of course, more support is always helpful, but I think we've reached a point where the momentum is clearly with the companies, with the rail operators, etc. And we don't need to wait for, for more regulation or more subsidies. Thank you very much. And uh, that's very, very interesting. And uh, so Athanasius, if you would like to, you know, to add anything also on this, you know, intermodal model or, you know, which model is the future perhaps? <laughs> uh, Antonio, just to, just to specify that we're talking about the rail freight, uh, of course, uh, historically, uh, at least in the traction side, the biggest part uh, had been uh, the passenger uh, rail segment. And there the impact is not the same of COVID, of course, uh, or on open access networks. I mean, there has been an impact uh, for sure. On the freight side, it's positive. On the passenger side, uh, question mark. Uh, now, uh, on uh, the um, traction side of things, so on locomotives, which I, I am clearly, uh, you know, positioned to speak about in, in this podcast, um, I must admit that 
we have to be realistic. Rail has been the big loser uh, versus uh, trucks for the last 30 years. It's incomparable, uh, the growth of trucking uh, over the last 30 years compared to rail that has become a marginal part of uh, how we transport goods uh, uh, versus what it should have been in the past. Uh, that uh, has been, uh, to a certain extent, because passenger rail was favored, but even there, passenger rail lost compared to plane. Uh, and the second part uh, is that there has been a general uh, protectionist, uh, I would suppose, uh, approach towards protecting national incumbents uh, in every single country of Europe, and not only France or not only Germany. Uh, and liberalization uh, has not led to market growth yet. There are many reasons for that. I'm not sure it's regulation at the end of the day. It's how regulation is applied. The rules are there and they're good. And right now, even track access, which has been one of the important uh, bottlenecks in the past of saying, oh, rail is so expensive because we pay so much for network. This has been improved now, both in Germany, in France, in most other countries. But we need to be realistic. Most industrial sites in Europe have uh, stopped having uh, uh, or have removed their historical rail links uh, uh, to favor uh, tracking. That hopefully is something that could be um, grow the, the pie. Uh, now, our investments as infrastructure funds today are working more on replacement uh, needs uh, and uh, growth of the existing uh, rather than uh, a significant gain of market share, which is obviously possible, likely. But we need to make sure that it happens. And how will that happen? First of all, it will happen when we incorporate the externalities, the cost of the externalities that uh, uh, less uh, carbon, uh, for, uh, you know, and other emission-friendly modes of locomotion or of traction uh, or of transportation provide the proper cost uh, for that. Uh, and they don't today. There's no carbon tax uh, on tracking uh, today. And there should be. That's one of the things that it's, it's an obvious one. The next point is that on rail, because it is a safety-first environment, uh, uh, more than, uh, I mean, uh, equally as planes, uh, it, there has been a general sclerosis about how we implement uh, uh, rules uh, that are supposed to make uh, the European uh, network more harmonized. And that has a bigger role on, uh, on traction compared to... Uh, uh, to rail cars, uh, for sure. But uh, today, even though we're supposed to have harmonized signaling systems, we are ending up in some sort of form where we will have 27 uh, different interpretations of the harmonized system, and, <laughs> and you still need the 27 homologations. So those are implementation is key, and implementation to date uh, is probably left too much on national uh, uh, you know, implementation and interpretations rather than uh, centralized uh, harmonization. That is one key area that could change um, to foster more uh, rail uh, as a percentage of total uh, transport uh, movements because we're still not, with the exception of COVID, when uh, there was a gain of market share, it has been historically, in most countries, losing share. We are hopefully in a transition and in a, in a change of that paradigm. And if that is the case, for sure, then we will all be extremely happy because we will have resilience on one side, and that exists, and it is true that it exists, but uh, even more potential for growth. And that's exactly why we chose a lot of us, I presume, 
to position ourselves in this segment now versus uh, three years ago, not necessarily because it was called the 2021 a year of rail, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. Okay. So there is uh, a room for improvement in terms of, uh, of legislation for sure. Applying the rules, I would say, is, is uh, I mean, we had that there is this discussion at the moment as we speak about, uh, you know, what are the conclusions of COP26. The issue is not the objectives, which are important to have them, and they are there. The issue is how do we implement in such a way that it accelerates the trend, and that candidly uh, is not necessarily uh, up to uh, the level that we could in order to make that positive momentum that comes from demand, as uh, it was correctly pointed out before, from uh, the need to decarbonize supply chains into uh, into more demand for for services of our products. You know, you've basically introduced uh, the the last point, which I think is the most central issue at the moment. It's the energy transition and the shift to to sustainability. So I, I suppose you know, for everyone in this industry, in the rail industry now, the reducing emissions has gone up to the very top of their agenda. Now, coming to your investments specifically, how do you plan to do that? How will your investment support these efforts and improve sustainability? And I guess this goes both on this can be applied to to Axrail and to Nextrail. So on the locomotive front, on the freight uh, seg segment. So uh, who wants to start? I'm I'm happy to go for that uh, if if you want. Uh, so as I said before, uh, the the big issue here is. Uh, is rail is already you're investing in carbon avoidance whatever is the even with a very very old 50 year old diesel locomotives you are avoiding uh, co2 and other emissions much more compared to putting the equivalent number of trucks uh, uh, on the road so rail is at the heart of uh, co2 avoidance uh, by nature having said that uh, in order to be competitive towards uh, trucking you need to be able to offer good capillarity of the network, not necessarily last real last mile in the cities, because that, that let's let's be realistic. We will never be able to replace uh, the white uh, van uh, with a train uh, or a rail car, but uh, to get as close as possible to that last mile, and let alone to get to the single factory sitting somewhere loading. Uh, intermodal its container and collecting it and transporting it uh, through through a port to do that we cannot electrify the entire network of europe i mean this is impossible so we need to be able to uh, or what we did was take a view that there are solutions which are within uh, sustainability objectives of uh, taking thermal engines investing in them in uh, 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 in newer product, hybrid uh, locomotion with batteries, and taking a journey over the next five to seven years, which com will combine carbon neutral solutions like uh, synthetic fuels and biofuels, and will lead into carbon zero uh, emissions. But from now, not to wait uh, for the in when it arrives in 10 years, from now to start working on hydrogen applications for freight, and uh, therefore. T tackle the biggest issue, which is uh, 
our uh, 16,000 non-fully electric locomotives going and picking up the cargo where it cannot be fully electrified, either by design or by a lack of economic uh, rationale in a route that is used uh, once every week uh, to invest 10 million per kilometer in electrification, which is not happening in any country. So that is why being in rail in the first place is investing in sustainability. And our view through Next Rail, which is being in rail in the segment that has the biggest potential for impact in decarbonizing even the traction, is an even more virtuous uh, and impactful journey. And this is where we believe we can deliver as Infravia uh, value add for our clients, the sector, and ultimately capture the early mover rather than first mover uh, premium of having scale in a segment that uh, people are trying to avoid, uh, even though this is the core of the issue here to be able to increase uh, the percentage of uh, of rail uh, versus uh, uh, versus uh, trucks and not the mainline route uh, which is already fully electrified and goes from the port of uh, hamburg uh, to uh, uh, to hungary if you see what I mean. yeah perfect uh, oliver if you want to add something uh, on decarbonization and uh, also on you know this this whole issue about hydrogen applications what would you say yeah so first of all i would agree to what athanasius said i think an investment in the rail industry as such is already a support of uh, an environmental friendly way of transporting goods. Um, and um, uh, with respect to, to, to rail car leasing, um, I mean, um, a rail car as such doesn't have any greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, this is obvious, but there is not only the question of um, the direct emissions, but all, also indirect in a sense that um, you always have to ask yourself, what are the goods that you actually want to transport, right? Um, so we can uh, transport oil, gas, coal, etc. cetera. Um, Tuax is a player that is clearly focused on intermodal business. Um, and um, the way we can support um, the attempt of our customers to become even more environmental friendly is to get more involved, more and more involved in their logistics supply chain and make sure that we supply them with the right wagons um, to allow them to um, move away from from road transport wherever that's possible. And Athanasius is right. Um, on the last mile, trucking is is pretty flexible and dynamic. That's that's not the the key field for competition of rail. It's rather the long term, long distance, long distance transport. Um, outside of our investment at uh, Tuax Rail Limited, we see. A number of opportunities and we are currently working on a number of opportunities that tackle exactly um, the let's say lack of um, electrification of the european rail network as athanasios described it um, because now you you have occasions where um, on on certain routes um, that are partially electrified and partially non-electrified you might find diesel locomotives running under under catenary and running over electrified routes which um, is uh, yeah hurts to say that basically and that's why there are a couple of initiatives where the idea is to focus or to replace diesel power locomotives on, on long distances by alternative traction power which can be provided by hydrogen for for example and this is something what I mentioned earlier, where um, you can take two approaches. On the one hand side, you can wait for 
the government to make available a kind of infrastructure uh, for hydrogen, or you try to team up with the right partners, um, which might include um, OEMs, uh, energy majors, industrial companies, etc. And you approach it rather from a kind of a project perspective, where you start with well-defined use cases, and out of these use cases, you you grow your um, your your business case, and you grow um, and expand geographically, um, and in terms of um, yeah yeah v value chain and, and transport service that you can offer. So this is clearly something that we see, and where I believe that. Um, the industry will will uh, apply um, innovative solutions much quicker than any government will be able to provide the required infrastructure or to um, release respective supporting measures. Okay, thank you so much. I think think uh, we can uh, wrap this up just with a very brief, you know, final remark from both of you uh, on where it would be good to see the industry ten years from now. Just uh, you know, just to conclude this. Athanasius? Well, that's, uh, I'm not sure I'm such a visionary to, to, and so experienced in the sector to tell you exactly where the industry should be. But what I can say is that uh, uh, it is pretty obvious that uh, rail is uh, uh, a good way of moving people and cargo around uh, our continent, which has never been uh, as unified as it is over the last 10 years. So uh, rail is what started the industrial revolution and it's lost the steam. So I would like to see this take a more central role <laughs> compared to what it has been put on the sidelines over the past two years. Uh, I would also like to hope that um, now that the compass uh, has been set uh, and societal uh, you know, claims have become uh, finally uh, more at the forefront of where uh, economic actors are ready to act uh, in terms of sustainability, that we can be positioned well uh, to offer uh, a wider range of solutions to be able to make uh, rail more relevant uh, and uh, within the complexities of, uh, uh, you know, uh, of the technicalities, at the end of the day, uh, offer as lessors uh, multiple uh, solutions to our clients for dual modes, uh, single modes, uh, all sorts of modes of, uh, of a relevant traction to be able to accomplish what uh, we require, which is much more goods uh, and people to be uh, moved around uh, by rail rather than by road or plane at the end of the day. Yeah, I think you've asked a billion uh, euro question. Um, and uh, of course, we, we don't have a crystal ball. But I think that in 10 years from now, um, the rail market will be um, much more agile, uh, much more flexible. Um, we see that state incumbents struggle um, with a service offering, which is not very flexible, not really oriented on the needs of the customers. And you see more and more privately owned companies, operators, leasing companies that um, provide mobility solutions rather than offering um, uh, pure rail solutions in a sense that um, the ra it's not always about rail against road. 
it is also about finding the right mix between them, um, offering more um, flexible rail transport, um, supporting um, emission-friendly uh, transportation solutions. And I think in 10 years from now, um, we will we will see an industry that um, uh, delivers, as it delivers today, a stable way of transporting, but which has become much more common in a sense that it will be easier for logistic companies to really make use of the advantages of rail, which um, is a potential that is nearly untapped um, today. All very interesting. So thank you so much, Athanasius and Oliver, for, for this insightful contribution. Thank you. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you, Antonio. Thanks, Athanasios. So thank you to everyone for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more, please check our website, follow us on social media, comment, like and share, and look out for our next podcast. Thank you very much and have a good day.